This morning's scripture reading is from the book of Esther, chapter 4, and I'll be reading it in its entirety. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She set garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hatak, one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed to her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai and learn what this was and why it was. Hatak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hatak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hatak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's province know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one who who the king holds out the golden scepter so that he might live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. And they told Mordecai that, or what Esther had said, and Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come into the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish... I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything that Esther had ordered him to do. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Tony. Uh, Good morning. Today, I want to tell you a story, an incredible story, a great and grand story. And I think stories are important. Stories have power. Stories have meaning. That your very life is a story. A story of significance. And that 
Stories have power when told. And I love how C.S. Lewis talks about stories. Through his friendship with some other writers at Oxford in the early 20th century, including J.R.R. Tolkien, he came to be talking about myth. And it was this discussion about myth that led to his conversion. You see, they were talking about great stories, that all great stories, all great myths throughout history have these kind of common elements, these common elements that speak to our souls, that touch our very hearts. We all love stories of redemption, of good triumphing over evil, of sacrifice, of humble and noble kings. And all these stir in us because they point to the greatest story of history in which we are all participating. What C.S. Lewis called the true myth, that all great stories point to the true myth, the story of God creating the world, of man breaking the world through sin, first through Adam and then through our own choices, generation after generation, and Jesus coming as the hero to redeem and to restore. See, this book, this collection of books is one big story that tells the great story of history, the grand overarching story, the meta-narrative it's sometimes called the story of God's redemptive history, the greatest story ever told. And it's a love story. As we had Valentine's Day this week, you might have gone to the card shop, Dollar Tree's where I get my cards, and you might have looked inside at some of the ridiculous statements about love, the the trite little flippant sayings that are written about what love really is, and maybe you thought about how confused Our culture is about love, but the greatest love story ever told is written in the pages of this book. Ravi Zacharias, a Christian apologist, said it this way this week, the gospel of Jesus Christ is also a love story, a love story from before the foundation of the world that defines all of history, that speaks of an undying love in which you and I are the object of the greatest story ever told. And our story today is connected to that grand story of history, to that love story that culminates in Jesus Christ. And it connects to the stories which we have been looking at here in this church for the past few months in Genesis 1 through 11, the story about God's redemptive plan, his call of Abraham, who would become a family, which would become a people, which would in turn produce an offspring through whom all nations would be blessed. And God's call of Abraham had in mind the promise of the snake crusher told in Genesis chapter 3 to Adam and Eve. Our story today is an amazing story, and it speaks to me, and it's such an encouragement to me personally, because famously, God is never mentioned in Esther. In fact, there's nothing about sacrifices or laws or covenants or promises. Nothing big miraculous happens in Esther. And in my life at times, in fact, many times, I have asked, God, where are the big miracles? 
where are you at work? Because I don't see it. God, where are you speaking to me? There's a story of Elijah the prophet looking for God's voice. And he looks in the great wind that shakes the mountain and in the earthquake that breaks the ground and in the raging fire and God is not there, but instead speaks to him in the still small voice. Sometimes I feel like I'm missing the still small voice too. Sometimes I feel like, God, where are you in this circumstance? Where have you been? Show me the miracles. But... Just like in the case of Esther, with some perspective and the benefit of looking back, God's hand was on every page of the story. He keeps rescuing and rescuing and rescuing, even when life seems bleakest. When the wick of hope is all but extinguished, the story is not about the big miraculous, but about everyday providence, about God using people imperfect people who seem to do very little to accomplish his plans and his purpose. So let's look at the story. It takes place in the time of empires. No longer is the world ruled by little kings and kingdoms, little nomadic city-states. Instead, the Medes and the Persians have conquered the known world. They have an empire. And we open and see this empire is ruled by Ahasuerus. Xerxes, he's called at other places in history, so we will call him Xerxes. And the Jewish people at this time have been taken out of their land. They have entered into um, the captivity in other nations, and while they have been in captivity for many years, some of the people have gone back to Jerusalem like Ezra and Nehemiah and started to rebuild the temple and the walls, but most of the Jewish people remain scattered throughout the empire. And this is where we see Xerxes at the height of his rule, and we open on the scene of a lavish banquet, a great party. Some military conquest has probably just happened, and we see that Xerxes is throwing a huge party for the whole capital city. The Bible talks about the fancy curtains, pretty nice, the couches, really good furniture, and drinks, lots and lots of drinks. In fact, the Bible refers to it this way about the drinking. There was no rules. They were drinking a lot. And we see King Xerxes and some of his advisors, his military generals gathered together drinking, and we see a special kind of stupid that happens when the group of men like this are drinking together. And they came up with a brilliant plan. Xerxes says, you know what we need right now at this party? We need to call the queen, my wife Vashti. I need to bring her here, and you guys need to see how hot she is. She's really attractive. She is beautiful, and I'm going to call for her. She's going to come parade before us so that we can look at her. And wow, great idea, the guys say to Xerxes. And so the, the instructions are sent to Queen Vashti, and Vashti responds, maybe like some of you are thinking right now, that's crazy. No way. 
No way am I going to come parade before you and your drunk friends. No. And while we laugh about that, to say no to the king, the emperor of the Medes and the Persians, was not something that you did. You can't disrespect the king. You can't fail to obey the king's direct command. And so Xerxes is mad, really mad. He is furious. And the brain trust, the group of his drunk buddies, are mad as well. Like, if Vashti can disobey the king like that, what does that mean for all the rest of the women in the kingdom? Like, when I tell my wife something back home, she's going to say, well, Vashti didn't have to obey the king, so I'm not going to do what you say. This is bad news for all of us. What are we going to do about this? And Xerxes is fueled in his anger, and he says, yeah, this is, this is bad. This is really bad. So Vashti is banished. Uh, a decree is written that Vashti is no longer queen, divorced by writ, apparently, sends word that Vashti is, is never again to come before the king. She's out. She is not queen anymore. But this creates a new issue. The kingdom needs a queen. The king needs someone on his arm. And so, again, brain trust, great idea. You know what we need? Beauty contest. Great idea. Let's get all the eligible women of the kingdom and beauty contest, the king gets to pick out the most beautiful one. Xerxes says, great idea, guys. You guys are on it today. And so... A beauty, queen, beauty contest is arranged to find the new queen. All the eligible women of the kingdom are brought into the harem, and we are introduced in this contest to our main character of this story, a young Jewish girl named Hadassah, or Esther. She is an orphan who has been brought up by her cousin Mordecai, and in the beauty contest, we see that she has got the golden ticket and made it through to Hollywood. She's in to the final rounds of the beauty contest. And in this final rounds of the beauty contest, it involved primping and pampering and getting ready and soaking in oils and all the finest of cosmetics. And the women took a year to get ready. And this is the point where the men say, I have felt like it has taken a year for my wife to get ready. But this is literally, literally a year that Esther and the other women are getting ready and they're made to look as beautiful as possible and we get to the end of the beauty contest and Esther is the winner. The king chooses her above all others to be the new queen. And Mordecai, who is her cousin but has raised her as his own daughter and loves Esther with his heart, wants to check up on Esther and make sure that she's doing okay and see how things are going in the contest and in the palace. And so Mordecai hangs around the king's gate, trying to catch a glimpse of Esther, trying to hear word of how she is doing. And as he's sitting, just so happens, as he's sitting at the gate, he overhears two guys talking about how much they hate the king. Man, that king is the worst. I hate him. I hate him too. I wish he was dead. Yeah, let's kill him. 
and Mordecai overhears a plot to kill the king. And being a faithful member of the empire, Mordecai sends word as soon as he can through Esther to the right people, and the plot to kill the king is stopped. And Mordecai's good deed is recorded in the king's book of Chronicles. Now at this point in the story, we see another character come onto the scene, the wicked Haman. Haman is a man of great authority in the kingdom. He has risen to a place and position in the kingdom where he is respected all about town. He has the ear of the king. And Haman is descended from the Amalekites. And the Amalekites, if you look through the Old Testament, are the enemy of the Jewish people. There is hatred between the Amalekites and the Jews. In fact, some Jewish history says that the Amalekites have come to represent the evil enemies of God in the minds of the Jewish people. And Haman hates the Jews. And in the position that he is in the kingdom, as he walks through town, Haman is a man of respect, and people bow down to him. People get out of his way. Haman is important. He's hot stuff. And everybody bows down in the kingdom. Everybody gets out of the way of Haman except for one guy. One guy who knows who Haman really is. Knows that Haman is a bad guy and not worthy of respect. Mordecai the Jew. And this lack of respect from Mordecai fuels the hatred of Haman. And Haman is so mad. How dare he not bow down to me? How dare he not move out of respect for me? And Haman hates Mordecai and the Jewish people so much that he's not content with a plan just to kill Mordecai, but instead wants to kill the entire Jewish people. Wants to wipe them off the face of the earth. And in the position in which he is in the kingdom, he has the power to make that happen. And he begins this plot, this plan to kill off and destroy the Jewish people. The plan is which anybody can kill a Jew and take all their property and land on one specific day. There will be one day, the day of reckoning for the Jewish people. And through some level of trickery and smooth talking and bribery, Haman gets the king's approval for this plan. And he writes it up. And all that's left is to decide when exactly this will take place. On what day will be the day of the Jews' extermination. And so, Haman rolls the dice to pick the day. And the dice come up 11 months away on a dare the month of Adair, the 13th day. This will be the day. The edict is sealed with the king's ring and sent far and wide throughout the kingdom. And Haman is pretty proud of himself. And he goes to celebrate. And he says he's drinking and he gets the king to celebrate with him. Meanwhile, the Jews receive this message far and wide, dispersed throughout the kingdom and know exactly what it means. It means their ultimate demise. It means their destruction. The Jews are horrified, and Mordecai receives the news, the bad news, and as a lot of us do when we receive bad news, he tears off his clothes and goes to wail in the street. No? Nobody else? 
This was the custom. He put on sackcloth, uncomfortable clothes, and he went and sat in ashes in the street, and he wailed, and he wept, and he made a scene. He caused a big scene. And he went to the king's gate. He, couldn't, he went as close as he possibly could to the king and his kingdom, because there was a law that said no one dressed in sackcloth could come any further than the king's gate. He went right up to the border, and he caused a scene, and he wept, and he wailed. Meanwhile, Esther, in the kingdom, doesn't really know what's going on, has not heard the news. And in fact, we learn from the beginning parts of the story that Esther has kept hidden her heritage. Nobody in the palace knows that she is actually a Jew. And the servants come to tell Esther, your cousin Mordecai is out in the street. He doesn't have a lot on. He's making a scene. It's kind of embarrassing. Everybody's looking. Everybody sees him. And Esther's like, oh, no. What am I going to do? So first she says, well, let's take care of the problem. I'm going to send him some clothes. So she sends some clothes down, and Mordecai refuses them. And so Esther goes, well, maybe i got to really find out what is wrong. And we get here to the point in the story, the chapter in which we read, in which Mordecai reveals to Esther the news that the Jewish people are to be utterly destroyed, that Esther and all of her people are to be wiped out from the face of the earth, and the king's edict cannot be undone. The people know this, and the Jews are now living in terror, anticipating the day when their neighbor will come for them and all that they have. They are walking around condemned in a state of death, All that's left is for the day itself to come. They are without hope. We are at the point in the story, like we talked about with Abraham, where the candle, where the wick of hope seems all but extinguished, where where the light is about to go out. And the interesting thing about that story and this story, and in fact many stories throughout the Old Testament, is that the wick seems almost out time and time and time again. Just look at the first three patriarchs, the great people, the great fathers of the nation of Israel. Abraham, who was barren until well into his old age. Isaac, who was nearly sacrificed on the mountain by his father. And then Jacob and his sons, who would have died in the famine were it not for Joseph being sold into slavery in Egypt. Again and again and again, the wick of hope is about to be extinguished. What I love about this says about the Bible and about Scripture is that this is not a book written by a people trying to create their history to make themselves look good like most people who write history books do. This, is a, this book is the Word of God because it doesn't show the Jewish people in a great light. It shows them almost on the brink of extinction again and again and again, and God coming to rescue, and God being the hero of the story. The story is ultimately about God and his plan of redemption. He is the true hero of the story. So the Jews are walking around condemned, but Mordecai has not given up the candle of hope yet. The flame still burns, And he says to Esther, I have a plan. 
that you need to go before the king and beg for our lives. Beg that we would be relieved from this tragedy. And I love the way that Mordecai says it. Says, if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Man, what a powerful statement that is. For such a time as this. Where have you been placed for such a time as this? Where, in what neighborhood do you live? In what job do you work? In what family have you been placed for such a time as this? There's no accidents to where you find yourself at this time and place in history. And maybe, just maybe, who knows, as Mordecai says, you have been put here for such a time as this. Maybe someone needs you to be the hero simply because you're in the right place and the right time. And maybe you went through that pain and that loss that you went through for such a time as this because someone near you needs ministering to who has ex- is experiencing pain and loss. There's no accident to where you find yourself. And maybe, just maybe, this is the purpose for which you were created. So Esther has been placed in the palace by God for such a time as this, but it's not without risk. The problem is that there are rules, and the rules are serious. We saw what happened to Vashti. No one goes before the king uninvited. And in fact, if someone does go before the king without being invited, there's one rule, immediate death. No trial, no, no verdict, just death. Unless, unless the king raises his scepter to accept their presence. And Esther knows this. She knows the potential costs. And she's understandably nervous, but she decides to do it anyway. And then she utters the famous words, perhaps for which she is most famous, I will do this, and if I perish, I perish. But this is what I'm going to do. I am going to stand on behalf of God's people, and if I die, I die. Are you willing to give up everything? Are you willing to give up the things in your life, even important things, for what is ultimate? For God and his people, Esther was willing to lay down her life. Esther was willing to leave her comfortable place in the palace and risk her life to save the people. Are you willing to part with the things of your life? even the good things for what is ultimate. Like Kirk read before, are you willing to lay down your life for Jesus' sake and for the gospel in order for what you might gain in Christ? So Esther decides with great courage to go before the king. And the king not only raises his scepter, but welcomes her warmly. Esther, my queen, so good to see you. Welcome, welcome to my presence. What can I do for you? You must have some kind of request. Anything you want, up to half my kingdom. What a welcome. So Esther says, I've come here to ask you and Haman to a dinner party. I'm throwing a banquet. It would be great if you and Haman came. 
And, of course, the king accepts the invitation, and Haman goes to a dinner party with the king and queen. And Haman thinks he's pretty special. He is invited, only him, to a private dinner with the king and queen. I mean, this pretty much, this must be in my honor. I'm the only one here. This is pretty great. I'm pretty important. This is awesome. And Haman thinks a lot of himself. And they have a great banquet, a great dinner, and they go through and they have their drinks. And then the king asks, Esther, I know, I know that there's a reason that you brought us here. I know that there's something that you want to ask. What is it that you want? Anything that you ask up to half my kingdom. And Esther then says, I threw this party in order to invite you to another party. This is the pre-party and so that I could get you here in person so that I could invite you to another party that I'm throwing tomorrow night. And as I read the story, I always thought, that's such a weird detail. That's such a strange, this party's for that party. I, maybe she's building up courage. I don't know. But then when you see, when you see in the story what happens on the day and night between the two parties, it becomes oh so significant. See, as Haman leaves, full of himself, proud to have been in the presence of the king and queen, he thinks he's the greatest thing since sliced bread. And he's walking through town, and people are moving out of the way and bowing down for him, and he's getting more and more puffed up, and he's so awesome, and people are moving and bowing down, and then he turns the corner, and there's that one guy, not bowing down, Mordecai the Jew standing there defiantly not giving respect to Haman. And, oh, this is too much. This, is, this disrespect is too much. I can't take it anymore. I can't wait any longer for Adair 13 when the Jewish people are going to be wiped out completely. Haman says, I want him dead now. I can't take it anymore. This guy is too much. And so Haman goes home and tells talks to his wife and to his advisors. He's got his own brain trust at home. And they're like, yeah, you shouldn't put up with that. That's terrible. you got to get rid of that guy. You know what you should do? You should build a gallows right in front of our house. And that's where you need to kill Mordecai tomorrow. And Haman thinks, yeah, that's a pretty great idea. I'm going to get him. I'm going to get rid of him. Meanwhile... Back at the palace, the king can't sleep that night. The king has insomnia. And apparently, when kings can't sleep, instead of counting sheep, they have brought to them the book of the Chronicles to tell of all the great things that they have done and all the things that have been done in their name. And so King Xerxes has the servants come and bring the book in the Chronicles to read to him while he can't sleep. And coincidentally... The servants turn to the page in the story where Mordecai, the Jew, overheard a plot to kill the king and gave word and heroically saved the life of the king. And Xerxes thought, wow, that's pretty great. What a great guy. He saved my life. What has been done to honor Mordecai? What has been done to reward him for this great deed and the servants go, I, uh, nothing's been done. 
for Mordecai. He's like, wow, we need to fix that. I need some ideas. Who's here? Who of my advisors is here that I can ask? And coincidentally, just at that moment, Haman the Amalekite is walking in to the palace. And Haman has the intention of going before the king and asking permission for his plot to kill Mordecai and to hang him in front of his house. And the king welcomes Haman into his presence and says, Haman, perfect, I'm so glad you're here. I've got a question for you. What should be done to reward the servant whom the king is pleased to honor? And Haman thinks, okay, I know what's going on here. Who else would the king want to honor but me? And in fact, I've given this a little thought. So I've got some ideas. Here's what. First, there's got to be a robe, a royal robe that the king himself has worn, something great. And then there's got to be a horse, a really nice horse from the king's stable, one that he himself has ridden in battle to victory. And there's got to be a parade, of course a parade, and you've got to walk the servant through the town. And one of the other servants should lead the horse and proclaim to all the people, this is what is done to the servant whom the king delights to honor. And the king says, perfect, great idea, do it all. Every single thing you said, don't leave anything out, and do it for Mordecai. <laughs> what a great story this is. And even can you imagine, what? Who now? What? What are you talking about? And so Haman, Haman has to throw the party and be the one who leads the horse through the town, parading for Mordecai and telling all the people, look how great he is. This is what is done to the servant whom the king delights to honor. Wow, can you imagine? What a terrible day for Haman. And Haman, it says, by the end of the day is just distraught. The Bible talks about he went home with his head down and covered in mourning. This is a terrible, terrible day. And he gets home and he goes to his wife and his brain trust and he says, you would not believe what happened to me today. This was the worst day. And just as he's getting into the meat of complaining, maybe you've been there, I know I have, which is like, oh, I got to tell you about this. This was the worst. You won't believe it. And just as he's getting going and pouring out his troubles, the servants come and say, it's time for the second banquet. It's time to go back to the palace and have another banquet with the king and queen. Okay, so, whew, Haman shakes it off. I gotta go have dinner with the king and queen. It's gotta get better, right? I mean, they love me up there at the palace. I'm gonna go back to the dinner. And so, the second dinner party. And the king and queen are there again, and they have the party, and it's great, and they have the drinks, and it comes to the end of the party, and the king says to Esther again, okay, seriously, what do you want? Paraphrase. What can be done, Esther? What is your request? Anything that you desire up to half of my kingdom? And now Esther lays it on the line. I just want my life 
and life for my people. I want us to be spared because we have been sold into death. And if we had just been sold into slavery, I wouldn't trouble you with this because our afflictions are not worthy to be compared with the loss to you, O king. But we are to be destroyed and utterly wiped out. And I'm begging you for my life. If I have delighted you at all, O king, if I have given you any pleasure in your presence, please, our lives. And the king says, your life, of course. And the king is upset. Who would dare threaten the life of my queen? Who has done such a thing? How could this happen? And Esther points and says, a foe, the wicked Haman, the guy right here. And the king is furious. How, what, how could this happen? You threatened the life of my queen. And he's, he's too distraught. And he gets up and he leaves the room. And he's, oh, what am I going to do about this? And he's thinking. Meanwhile, Haman stays back in the presence of Esther to beg for his life because he knows he's in trouble now. He knows that the king has got bad things in mind for him. And he begs Esther, please, I, he begs for his life. And he's so distraught, he falls down on Esther's couch, begging for his life. And coincidentally, just at that very moment, the king comes back into the room and sees Haman falling on Esther's couch. And he says, will he assault her even in my presence? And the Bible says, even as those words left his mouth, the servants came and took Haman away. And they told the king that Haman has erected a gallows in front of his house where he planned to kill Mordecai. And the king says, hang him on that. And Haman's plan becomes his own destruction. And so Esther continues to beg of the king for, his li for their life, for the life of the people, for the Jewish people, and says that this is going to happen on Adair 13, on this day that is coming up. What can be done? Can we be saved? And a new plan is devised, and Mordecai is brought in and asks for his wisdom, and the plan becomes that on Adair 13, instead of the destruction day for the Jews, it becomes a day where they are allowed to fight back. In fact, they are supplied with arms and support and backup from the armies of the empire. And what had been the day of their destruction becomes the day of their deliverance, where their foes are defeated and where their wealth grows and they get to have all the land and the plunder from the defeat of their enemies. And this day became in the life of the Jewish people the Feast of Purim. Purim, which means the dice, in reference to the dice that Haman had rolled to pick the day of their destruction. See, God is famously never mentioned in this story. But clearly, he is present in every page. Look how many coincidences had to happen for the story to unfold the way that it did. The downfall of Vashti, the decision to hold a beauty contest to replace her, Mordecai's overhearing of a plot to kill the king, Esther being in position in the palace before Haman's plot, 
the king's insomnia on the night before Mordecai's execution, Haman entering just as the king is wondering how to reward Mordecai, the king's return into the room just when Haman falls on Esther's couch. See God's hand at work. One commentator said it this way, the deliverances experienced here in Esther is very different from the exodus in Egypt in the time of Moses. There are no signs and wonders, no special revelation, no prophet like Moses, and no one even mentions God. Yet the way the story is told makes it clear that even when God is most hidden, he is still present and working to protect and deliver his chosen people. God is at work. God is at work even when it doesn't feel like it. Even in my life where I say, God, where have you been? I'm standing here in tragedy. My destruction is at hand. God, where have you been? Where are the miracles in my life? I've experienced this loss. God, where are you? And thank God that there have been those times where he has showed me, looking back, look at how I brought you from that place to this. Look at all the steps that were a part of your journey that were necessary that were for your good. Romans 8.28 talks about all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And we th- I think we misuse that verse so much. I think we, we make it to seem like everything's going to be fine. It's all going to work out. Sometimes it's going to feel like it's not. But when all things work together for good, it's not my good. Because my good is not the ultimate good. God's good is. And only when my good aligns with God's good does it become for my good. Because the verse goes on to say, for those who love God and are called according to his purpose, that the ultimate good is God's big plan that we can't see, that we may never see, that we may never totally understand. In Isaiah 55, it's, God says, my ways are not your ways, and my thoughts are not your thoughts. Just as the heavens are higher than earth, so are my ways higher than your th- ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. We may never understand what God is doing, but God is at work. God's plan will go forward. Again, in the book of Isaiah, chapter 46, verses 9 through 11, it says this, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure calling a bird of prey from the east, the man who executes my counsel from a far country. Indeed, I have spoken it. I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I also will do it. God's plan will go forward. God's plan cannot be stopped. It cannot be stopped. God's purposes will be accomplished. And the ultimate purpose... The ultimate plan of God from the very beginning, from all the stories that we've seen, from Genesis, from Adam and Eve to Cain and Abel to all the to Noah to Abram, the plan is and always was Jesus. 
Jesus is the plan that when God calls Abraham to make him a nation, it's so that he can create a family and a people through which the line of the king can come. The deliverer, the offspring who would bless all nations. Some years ago, I was watching a televangelist late at night. Mistake, maybe. But he said, he said this, God used Israel and he created his chosen people to be a light in the world and to call people to come to God. And yes, that's true. But then he said, Israel continued to fail in its responsibilities. And so then God had to send Jesus. That's not the way that it is. That's, Jesus was never plan B. Jesus is and always has been the plan of God. And that what Jesus did in the gospel story, in the redemptive plan of history, when he lived a perfect life, when he died on the cross for your sins, and when he rose from the grave to offer you new life, that is and always has been the plan. That, when, that, that is what Esther is about. That when the wick of hope seems bleakest, when the people of God are about to be extinguished, God steps in and preserves his people to protect his line, to bring the redeemer, to bring the king. It's always been about Jesus. I love what Mordecai says in chapter four. If you don't stand up, salvation will come from somewhere else. God's plan cannot be stopped. But... He wants to use you. And maybe, just maybe, I love what he says, who knows? Maybe this is the reason that you're here in this place and time for such a time as this. Maybe someone around you needs to hear the grand story of history, the love story for them that Jesus wants to redeem them. Maybe that's why you're here. Man, I want purpose in my life. I think you want purpose in your life. You want a reason, why am I here? Maybe this is it. Maybe it's because your neighbor needs Jesus. Or maybe just to be the love of Jesus. Maybe it's such little things. What did Esther do, really? She was pretty, and she went and stood before the king. I, I don't have a lot to offer to be honest, you don't have a lot to offer. You don't have anything that God needs. His plan will go forward, but he wants to use you. Don't you want to be a part of it? And it is scary. There's risk. There's risk. Will you stand with courage like Esther and say, no matter what the consequences, this is where God has called me and this is what I will do. Will you go where it's scary? Will you take the risk? Say, if I perish, I perish. If I die, I die. If it's, if it's death to my business, if it's death to my social standing, if, if, it's, if it's death to my respect in the neighborhood, then it's death. But this is what Jesus called me to do. God wants to use you, but his plan will go forward. God preserves his people for his perfect plan, and that plan is and always was Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me? God, thank you 
for story. Thank you for the gift of our lives, for the gift of a story that we get to be a part of and participate and tell. But God, more importantly, thank you for the great story of history, the story of Jesus Christ, the story of redemption, the story of you remaking and recreating and redeeming the world. Thank you for stories like Esther, which point us to you. And and may we have courage to see that you have called us to a specific place and time. There are no accidents. Help us have eyes to see the world around us, which is a people walking in condemnation and death. People that you created, beautiful people in your image are walking in condemnation and death. May we be light to them. May the light of the candle of hope burn bright here at Bethany and in our community and around the world. May you receive glory and honor by many people coming to you and singing praises to your name. And even so, come Lord Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.